iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store. Welcome, everybody, to the Apple Store in Soho. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Good to see you. The movie opens this Friday at the Angelica, right up the street. Excellent. Uh, please welcome our moderator for tonight, Josh Horowitz from MTV News, and filmmaker Ryan Johnson. Let's hear it for him. So, Hello, uh, Mr. Johnson. We uh, we spoke a number of months ago at the Toronto Film Festival, uh, where this very interesting, exciting film first screened. Or, you know, nearly eight months later, are you more anxious, more excited, less so as this film is about to be unfurled? Uh, in the I'm, masses. I'm kind of in a. And thank you guys for for coming. First of all, and thanks to Josh from. MTV Music News for or MTV Movie News for coming. Uh, I, I'm really uh, we we premiered at Toronto and then we were originally split, which was in October Toronto, yep. and then we were originally supposed to come out in November. And then Summit looked around at all the movies in November and realized there were a lot of them coming out, and so they pushed us into December. And then Summit looked at all the movies coming out in December and realized, boy, there's still a lot of them coming out. And so we kind of kept getting pushed back. And now we're opening in May, which I think is actually really good for the film. But it's given me eight months to kind of chill out a little bit and kind of like um, it's hard to be nervous for eight months straight. And so I'm now kind of in a just relax. I'm just I'm actually just really anxious for it to get out there and for, you know, you guys to get to see it and for it, you know, people to hopefully find the movie and, and get to check it out. So, I, I'm, you know, I'm curious, you know, as a as a film fan, um, there's really nothing better than a really good con film. There, you know, it's it's a, a it's a, a genre that is tough to perfect, but when it's done right, it's really satisfying and rewarding. Uh, what are your favorites in terms of this genre? Were there films that you were looking at as you approached the writing of this and the filming of it? Uh, there wasn't anything I was like specifically looking at, but I think Paper Moon is probably um, might be my favorite, and that's it. Also, in regards to this film, because Paper Moon is one of the first con men movies I saw, where it was about the this father daughter relationship. It was kind of it was a con man movie, but it was more kind of a, a relationship movie between these two people, and um, and that was something that uh, I think this it was something I wanted. to kind of in a very, very, very different way kind of do with this movie. Um, but then, of course, you got David Mamet's movies, you got The Sting, you got, uh, you have um, uh, without The Lady Eve, you've got, you know, I, I said Mamet, but he's, you know, House of Games and Spanish Prisoner, and, you know. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. So Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which is, which I, I got to see pretty recently. I did this little, like, run of con man movies at, at the New Beverly Cinema out in L.A., and we showed a beautiful print of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and, man, it, it, holds up it's a great it's a really good movie <laughs> so what's the uh you know you mentioned that what works about this film beyond you know the con ha obviously has to work and has to be satisfying and wrapped up in a nice way but it really is a character driven story you have some very indelible interesting unique uh, creations here primarily uh you know at the forefront the two brothers and penelope um did the, did the film start with any one of them i know that it was originally titled penelope correct it was yeah, it didn't. It, it kind of. It didn't start with any specific one of the characters. It kind of. I guess it started with the two brothers. But more than that, it started with the notion of doing a character-based con man movie, and that was kind of appealing because the, the, the con man genre is one where, as an audience, you're trained to come into it um, not trusting anybody um, because 
you know, the specific pleasure you get from a common man movie is who screws who over at the end of it. And so emotionally, you're, you kind of come in with your arm out like this to the characters. Um, and so that was an interesting challenge to me was can you do a movie where there's a love story in it and where um, by the end of it, it's not so much a plot twist at the end as it is more a emotional payoff with the characters. So, so that was kind of where I started coming from, I guess. You know, I'm wondering, uh, as you approach a film like this, a lot of people that are probably in this audience that are, um, that are interested in checking out this film saw Brick and were wowed by Brick uh, and what you did with, uh, with that story. You know, obviously a much smaller budget. Uh, you have Oscar winners in this one. You have multiple locations. At the end of the day, is the approach pretty much the same? Is it, does it feel like you're making a totally different kind of a film? Compare and contrast for me a little bit of experiences. No, it was really because Brick was was um, Brick was the first film I did. It was a really small little indie movie, and it was we shot it for like just under five hundred thousand, and it shot in my hometown, and it was um, a young cast, and it was you know really kind of intimate, and it, I was really comfortable doing that because that's kind of how I, um, you know, probably like a, a, a lot of filmmakers you know here in the audience and out there today i grew we grew up making movies you know we had these cameras and we would that's just what we would do on the weekends is uh you know i'd get my friends together and we would make a movie and that's really anything that i know about making movies that's kind of where i learned it from you know and so i really want every film i'm lucky enough to get to make to 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 kind of feel like that and brick definitely felt like that and there was I was really kind of concerned coming into Bloom whether we could maintain that, just because it was going to be, it's not a huge budget, it's not like a huge Hollywood budget, but it is a relatively bigger budget, and we had, you know, bigger stars in it, and we were going to be traveling around and crashing Lamborghinis and all this stuff. Um, and so it, it was kind of worrying, but it, it turned out just fine, actually. It turned it, The happy thing that I realized is once you actually get on set, and actually start doing the work with the actors and with the crew, um, all the superfluous stuff just vanishes, you know, it goes away. And it, uh, suddenly it doesn't matter how many magazine covers your actor has been on or how many crew people are milling around you or how big your craft service table is, you know, just suddenly all that goes away. And it's the exact same tools that you were using back in high school making a movie with your friends. It's a camera and a couple of people in front of the camera, and you're trying to make a scene work, you know? Um, and if anything, it's easier because you've got such talented people around you, and they're all, you know, focused towards the goal of making this thing work, so. Something that, that struck me about both Brick and this film, and something that, that's really exciting for, you know, a young filmmaker like yourself, just two films in, is they're both very unique worlds. You, you've created two worlds that are very distinct from each other, but not our world as we know it. They're a little bit off kilter in reality. Um, how much of movie making and how much of your approach uh, of the, to these scripts and to these films is conscious, that you want to create stylistically a world that's familiar but not necessarily our own well it's 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 conscious but not in that way it does it doesn't start with that it's not like i start with wouldn't it be great to have these people in these wacky costumes and all this crazy you know all wearing these hats and stuff it starts with the um well it it, it starts with kind of whatever i'm emotionally kind of thinking about it what i'm because it starts with whatever's on my mind at the time that then leads to telling this story and then every single stylistic choice that comes out of that comes out of the needs of the story, like um, with Brick, for example, like the dialogue in Brick, uh, which was very stylized and very heightened, um, that came out of um, the need to 
uh, you know, just the, the basic need to elevate this thing from the very start of it to let people know that they weren't in a real-world high school situation. Because if you're going to play out a Dashiell Hammett-style mystery in high school, um, you had to let people know that it was a very heightened reality from the start because they were going to be looking at locker cages in a very real kind of high school world. And so the second the language hits them, automatically it, it becomes something else. So that was the necessity there. With Bloom, um, it has this very kind of glossy, heightened reality to it. And that was because the entire thing is about um, Adrian Brody's character um, feeling like he's kind of trapped in these worlds that his older brother, Mark's character, writes. Like, R Mark is the one who writes all the cons and Adrian acts in them. And that's Adrian's thing, is he feels like he's kind of encased in this suffocating storytelling that his brother is doing, and he wants to bust out of it and, and have a real life. And so it felt right to heighten everything and to make you feel like the entire world around you was something that was created in those notebooks that Mark is scribbling in the whole time, you know? Yeah, you, you mentioned sort of like the plight of, of Adrian's character, who I guess is the character that we probably uh, relate most to as an audience member. Um, certainly not Mark's character, probably. Um, or Penelope, who's, who's quite a, a, a quirky character, to say the least. She takes up a right. litany of hobbies and uh, moves from hobby to hobby, essentially. I, I relate probably most to Penelope's character. <laughs> yeah. That was my question. So, yeah. you, uh, so Penelope is an aspect of yourself. Do you take up you know, random hobbies, card tricks at the drop of a hat? I do, I do do that. Is that weird? No. No? I think it's great. Okay. <laughs> I do know that I do, like, learn hobbies from books, but nothing that interesting. But it's, I mean, that's, yeah, all the, all the characters have, I mean, if you've, and, you know, if you're a writer, I mean, you guys know all the characters have something to do with yourself, but that's kind of the least interesting aspect of them, I think. Or that at least that's, as a writer, that's the thing you want to talk about the least, I guess, you know, so... I'm curious, out of Brick, um, you know, you chose to go right back and direct something based on your own material. Were you tempted to go direct something based on someone else's work? Uh, I'm sure, you know, scripts came your way after the success of Brick. Um, is it important to you to remain a writer-director directing your own material? Um, it's it's not Im important as some sort of, like, you know, grand idea, but it's just I have stories I want to tell, and if I actually have the opportunity to get my own stories made, you know, that's that's my priority right now, I guess, you know. And I've just I've just realized how wacky my socks are. I just realized <laughs> I, I wore the wacky socks this morning without thinking, and it's, I apologize to everybody. It's frankly been difficult for all of us to concentrate on anything but your socks. <laughs> okay. Okay, we're doing our best. Let's hold, um, let's hold this together. Yeah, please. Uh, what are we talking about? Brothers Bloom. No, okay, so what is what is your favorite? Now you're staring at myself. <laughs> I'm gonna look this way. Um, what, <laughs> what's your favorite or least favorite part of the filmmaking process? Talk to me about you know, are you happiest in the edit room, writing by yourself at a computer? What's the most rewarding for you? Uh, well, it's kind of all one one. The process kind of all smears together in a in a way, or it, it should, but. The least fun part of the process is probably writing, just because you're, you know, sitting in a room by yourself, just like forcing yourself to type these words over and over. And you're probably, and you, I know I, you know, don't sleep much, and I eat very unhealthily while I'm writing. It's just, it's not a healthy process. I think writing process. Um, 
I don't, I kind of just don't trust anyone who claims to actually enjoy writing. Um, but it's fun having written, like that's the good part of it. Like having that script that you've written is really, is really nice. And then filming is really fun because you get to interact with a lot of fun people and go to different places and then editing, you're, you're locked in a room again. Um, but editing is more fun than writing. Editing is definitely a, a really engaging, in a way it's, it's kind of, mixing the best of production and of writing. You have kind of the um, that solitary focus, creative focus, while at the same time you have the work of these other people. Um, but you don't have to wake up at five in the morning to get on set. So. In terms of this production, uh, you know, we talked about some of the, the differences, you know, at least surface differences in, uh, compared to Brick. Multiple locations, a slightly larger budget, though we're still not making a $100 million movie here. Anything in particular that caught you off guard that was a, a challenge to you as a, you know, there's the, the quote-unquote sophomore jinx for filmmakers that, that filmmakers are, uh, are perhaps wary about. Um, anything catch you off guard in terms of whether it's location shooting or... Um, I don't think anything in particular because I kind of didn't know. I mean, the whole thing was so new to me and I, I learned such an incredible amount going through this entire process. It wasn't like I felt coming into it you know, like I knew what I was doing and then there was something that jumped out and grabbed. I came into it like not knowing what I was doing, you know, you know, and just feeling like, okay, I gotta just take this one day at a time and do what I knew what I know how to do, which is just try and tell this story with these people, you know. And so I I was really there were a thousand things every day that surprised me, but I I wasn't surprised that I was surprised. <laughs> you were prepared. Ignorance is bliss as you approach yeah. it, right? So um you mentioned, you know, growing up, you know, again, probably like many people here, many aspiring filmmakers uh, shooting very early on. Uh, you know, the cliche question, but how early on did you know that you wanted to make this your, your life? Um, there was, uh, I was, my, my dad brought home a video camera when I was like, God, I don't know how old I was, 10, I guess, 8 or 9, 10. And um, it was one of those old video cameras. That it wasn't a camcorder. You actually had to hook it into the VCR and carry the VCR around with you if you wanted to shoot anything. Um, and at that time, because I was 10, the VCR was like half the size of, of me. And so uh, I, I, there was, I just kind of started doing it then, and then I made movies in junior high. And then in high school, I figured out you could get out of writing book reports if you made a movie about the book. And so... In high school, I made movies about Hamlet and Midsummer Night's Dream and Brave New World. And just, I kept, that was just kind of all that I did. It was never kind of like an aha moment. It was just kind of a continuous. Um, although, I guess after film school, when I wrote Brick for most of my 20s, I was, I was trying to get Brick made. And I was working day jobs and just trying to get anyone I could to read it. And, um, you know, just hanging out with my friends in LA who were kind of all in the same boat. And at a certain point, then you do kind of have to dig your heels in a little bit. You have to kind of make the decision that, okay, I'm, I'm not going to go away until I get this thing done one way or the other, you know? Um, so I don't know, maybe that period was when the, the rubber really hit the road, I guess. How do those early films hold up your interpretation of Hamlet as a teenager on film? I'm curious, have you dug that out of the closet lately? Uh, no. <laughs> no yeah. I think that should be the uh, DVD extra on Brothers Bloom, maybe. Do, do you now? <laughs> I think we could start a campaign, yeah. a letter writing campaign. The socks first, uh, put you know, there you go. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm very curious. We we, we talk. You like that? I, I do you? like it. Yeah? It's really yeah? impressive. <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. Sorry. Those listening to the podcast won't know what we're talking about, but he has some amazing socks. <laughs> um, I'm curious. I know your next film, or when we talked months ago, you were interested in doing a science fiction film. 
Yeah, I'm I'm writing it right now. I'm almost done writing it. So uh, it's called it's called Looper, and it's it's very different than Bloom is kind of a lighter, more fun movie, and Looper is is kind of dark and and violent and and science fiction. So very different. Set in Kansas, I understand. Yeah, yeah, set in Kansas. Yeah, yeah. Were you a big sci-fi fan growing up? What are your hallmarks of sci-fi? Now, well, I mean, like everybody, I think you know. I mean, obviously Star Wars, and then the you know uh, Blade Runner, and then. Blade Runner was the first like kind of adult sci-fi film, and then of course discovered Aliens and then the first Alien, and then uh, kind of the typical suspects, yeah, the usual suspects. But um, but I'm also I'm, I'm a big Philip Dick fan. This particular film that I'm writing doesn't have a lot to do with Philip Dick, but um, just as another sci-fi thing that uh, you know, uh, sci-fi is such a broad genre. I mean, there's really you kind of have to. Sci-fi is kind of this thin umbrella that covers a lot of other genres. Like you have noir sci-fi with Blade Runner. You've got, you know, um, and then the fact that both Star Wars and Primer are covered under this one banner of sci-fi lets you know how broad the banner is. Um, In terms of early on or even today, filmmakers that have made a particular difference in your life, uh, filmmakers that you make a point of checking out their latest work today, um, no, it's probably, it's just kind of the list of usual suspects, but I'm a big Scorsese fan. I love, uh, I, I really do dig the Coen brothers. I, I uh, yeah, it's, it's Sergio Leone is, is someone who I, I really, really admire. And I guess for this movie in particular, I was looking at a lot of Fellini and a lot of Bertolucci, actually. I was watching Eight and a Half over and over again. Um, and, uh, then The Conformist, actually, for some of the visual stuff in it. So those two guys were, were kind of for this film, but it's just kind of the usual, you know, uh, film school, <laughs> film school suspects, the I guess. boilerplate. Yeah. Uh, well, we're going to open it up to the audience for some questions, but first we've got uh, a clip from your film, The Card Trick, I believe. Do we need to set this up at all, or shall we I don't think this is, uh, this is a scene where, and this has been online, so I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it's, it's a scene where, um... Adrian's character is talking to Rachel, and Adrian is conning Rachel uh, in this, and this is kind of the first time they get a chance to sit down and, and talk. Here we go. Roll them. When I was five, I got really bad rashes and allergies and hay fever. So my mom took me to the doctor, and he did that test where they use needles to prick it right on your back uh, with different toxins on them you know, to see which ones you're allergic to. Next day I come in, doctor lifts up my shirt, and my back is a patch of oily, moldy, blackish green double puff marshmallows. I was allergic to everything. So they sealed the house with plastic and a special ventilation system, and I spent the rest of my childhood and adolescence indoors, alone. Lonely. No. It wasn't until I was 19 they discovered what I was actually allergic to was the aluminum alloy the hypodermic needles were made out of. Then I was going to leave, but my mom got sick, so I stayed. She stayed sick a really long time. Do you um, feel cheated? Trick to not feeling cheated is to learn how to cheat. So, I decided this wasn't a story about a miserable girl trapped in a house that smelled like medical supplies, wasting her life on a dying person she sometimes hated. No. This was a story about a girl who could find 
infinite beauty in anything, any little thing, and even loved the person she was trapped with. And I told myself this story till it became true. Now, did doing this help me escape a wasted life? Or did it blind me where I wouldn't want to escape it? I don't know. But either way, I was the one telling my own story, so... No, I don't feel cheated at all. Never trust Rachel Weiss with a deck of cards. That's no, she's the moral. a shark. Yeah, she's a shark. So, um, so we'll open it up to some questions. Do we have a mic or are they? Uh, them? Probably just shout them out. Oh, there we go. Okay. So if you uh, want to, I guess, raise your hands if anyone has any questions in the back. So I'm going to keep our questions. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I want to just uh, make a us. request, uh, keep our questions to the film and the filmmaker's work. If you have any of your own work, um, you can keep that to yourself. Awesome. <laughs> and nothing about my relationship with Angelina and all that tabloid stuff. Just keep it honestly. Let's, because let's keep it clean, folks. You keep too, it huh? clean, yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to know how many takes did that four ace and four queen scene take? And... Um, yeah, that's it. That was that. I was trying to see if there was some way you could, you know, trick photographize that. I don't know if yeah. that's a word, but yeah. Now that was take eleven, and uh, there was absolutely zero trick photography or post stuff done. That was completely Rachel. We we set up the mirrors and we planned that camera move where it comes around so that she'd line up in them, and she just practiced the trick over and over. And and on take eleven, she did it uh, while doing that whole monologue, which was pretty cool to see. Uh, down here in the front. Thank you. Could you talk about the casting process of King Kori Kuchi? Uh, it's just like uh, in, uh, in in her movie in Babel. She in this movie she hasn't talked that much. So yeah. I was just curious how the casting process goes. Right. The question is about Rinko Kikuchi and kind of you know and and it was weird. It's it's a it's a complete coincidence that she. Um, plays a you know she doesn't speak in Babel and then also in this film she doesn't speak. I had written this character to be kind of like um, Harpo Marx. This is a, as opposed to Babel. This is a very comic character, and um, I was really excited about the idea of creating a character completely nonverbal, but who was as strong a character as anybody else in the entire movie. Um, and so when I met Rinko and sat down with her, I had to talk to her about it because if you look at the script, it doesn't look like there's any character there at all because there are no lines. Um, and so I had to explain to her that she was going to be a part of every single scene and that it was, you know, nonverbal performance is, in a way, I think, a, even a more pure form of acting than than through dialogue. I mean, if she's creating an entire character just through her body language and her expression. And the fact that she was as excited about that as I was um, made me really excited to, to work with her. And she was terrific. She's, I don't know if you've seen the movie yet, but she really, her character through the whole thing is, um, I mean, she, she just about steals the movie, I think, you know? Actually, I want to ask a question about, uh, directing actors, because I read something uh, about you when you were directing Brick, saying that the one aspect of the film you were petrified about was working with actors, something you hadn't really done a ton of, at least on, on that level, or professional actors. How comfortable are you today, and uh, what, can, what, uh, what are the do's and don'ts you've found in your second film? 
Uh, well, coming into Brick, I was really scared, and then I, it became my favorite part of the whole thing. And then, but then coming into this, I was terrified also because just because of kind of the movie star factor of it, um, which is silly, but you still kind of get that knot in your stomach as the weeks lead up to actually sitting down and, and working with these guys. But similar to what I said about the filmmaking earlier, um, it's just like with Brick. I mean, when you actually engage and start working, that that goes away just instantly. Um, and these guys, you know, were... First of all, we got lucky. We actually got a cool group of people to work with that we enjoyed, you know, being with. Um, but also, I mean, the fact that they're so good at what they do makes it phenomenally easy because you're not struggling to get something. You're just kind of figuring out what the best thing is to get and knowing that they can, they can deliver that for you. So... Um, so no, it, it ended up, again, being the scariest thing coming in and also the most pleasurable thing of the entire process, I think. As you write, do you write with uh, specific actors in mind? Uh, no, no, I don't at all. I, because um, the casting process is uh, so complicated and so uh, difficult, especially for a film like this where we had to get kind of um, big name actors, but we're a relatively small film. Uh, so it took a long while to kind of get the right cast together for it. And inevitably, if you write with someone in mind, that's not going to end up being the person that you get. So no, I just I wrote the characters, and we were you know, lucky enough to get these guys to, to play them. Yeah, what were some of your uh, cognizant influences while you were writing the script? Also, uh, for your new one, too, if you care to expound. Um, writing the script... Uh, I wasn't. It, it, it sounds weird to say because you can probably watch the movie and see a lot more of them than I could than I could name right now. But it, when you're writing, in terms of them being, you know, cognizant, in terms of them being something that you're actually thinking about while you're writing, um, there were really none. I think it's impossible to write in that mode. At least for me, you kind of just get absorbed into wherever the story is going, and you try and just be really honest scene to scene and keep these characters alive and living on their own terms and keep this world going. Of course, then all the stuff that's in the back of your head that you've seen since you started watching movies is there, and that ends up seeping into it. And typically, you start, or at least I start recognizing where different stuff came from when I see the movie when it's kind of done. And sometimes even when people point stuff out to me, you know, but in terms of consciously thinking about other stuff while you're writing, um, uh, there's not a lot of that that goes on. Um, and the new one's kind of similar. I mean, it's, it's a completely different world than this, but um, uh, I guess there's elements of... Uh, um, I don't know. Just structurally, the new the thing that the movie the new one has the most in common with is the, the film Witness. Actually, <laughs> so it has nothing to do with sci-fi at all. But uh, that's just, just as a screenwriting thing. I'm thinking less in terms of like what the world. You know, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of screen of the structure of the thing and how the story works and holds together. And so those are the kind of oftentimes those are the kind of things you end up thinking about. Or when I was making Bloom, I, yeah, one thing that I was watching while I was making Bloom was the man who would be king. And I think that mostly was for the relationship between. You know Michael Caine and uh, uh, Michael Caine and why am I having a girlfriend? John Conway and their uh, kind of rascally sort of you know love love hate relationship to the whole thing uh, for the brothers. So it's it tends to be stuff that seems that maybe doesn't end up being reflected completely in the finished product. I guess. Does your brother have a interpretation? Of this? You have a brother, right? Yeah, I have a few brothers. No, they've been oddly silent mm. on the subject of this film. <laughs> um, you mentioned Bertolucci's The Conformist. Can you mention which aspects of The Conformist 
inspired you and were used in this film? Sure, it was, it was the visuals, specifically the visuals. Thematically and in terms of the world and the feel of the world and kind of the, the way everything put together, Eight and a Half was a much bigger influence. But in terms of the way the Bertolucci shoots and specifically using much wider compositions and when the camera moves, it moves in such a way that you really feel the three-dimensional aspects of the space that you're in. And because we were going into um, a lot of incredible environments with this movie, we were shooting on location quite a bit. I wanted to look at a visual style that was going to take advantage of that and that was going to really soak in every bit of detail all around us um, and still have a sense of playfulness to it. Um, and so The Conformist ended up being the thing I kind of latch, latched onto visually. In terms of uh, tools of the trade, like where are you at? Are you, um, I know we've talked before we got started cutting both films on Final Cut. Uh, yes. Why yeah, is that? We, Among you, you have many options at your disposal that are... Uh... Yeah, I'm, well, I'm really used to Final Cut. I cut brick on Final Cut, just like on my home computer and in my bedroom. This was... we. We had to be really portable because our um, editor was traveling around with us, and we were we started in Serbia. We went to um, Montenegro. We went to Romania. We went to Prague. We came back to Serbia. Um, I did the first I, like rough cut of it, like in in France for like a few months. And like we were just all over Europe basically. And so a, a lot of the film actually was just cut on a laptop. It was cut on a on a MacBook Pro um, with a couple terabyte FireWire drives um, and running Final Cut Pro. And being able to, to do that, to just literally be anywhere and work on the film was something that was really essential for this. Yeah. Here. Um, after you wrote Brick, did you think about selling to someone else for them to make instead of making it yourself, or did you always want to do it yourself? Uh, no, I, I was... You, you mean this one? Yeah, I, I always wanted to... Or you mean Brick, or do you mean... Oh, Brick. Yeah, no, I... I, I don't... I, don't think anyone would have like bought brick <laughs> in order to make it. Like I, I, that never would have entered my mind to begin with. It felt like something like I had to get made, but it wasn't the type of thing where people felt like, God, if we bought this and gave it to Ridley Scott, this is box office gold. You know, it was kind of it was a thing that nobody really believed in. So it, we kind of had to push it all the way there ourselves, I guess. Is there a conversation with a filmmaker in the wake of the success of Brick that really? satisfied you, made an impact on you? I mean, it obviously got a, a hell of a reception at Sundance, et cetera. Um, I got to meet a lot of really interesting people, because, yeah, after Brick, and, um, which was awesome, you know? Yeah, I don't think there was one in particular that, like, a, there wasn't some mentor who <laughs> put his hand on my shoulder or something. Steven but, Spielberg didn't come yes, floating no, over you. No, I haven't, I haven't <laughs> met the beard yet. have yet to meet the beard someday. He's, he's an intimidating man, but powerful. Any other questions, Mr. Ryan Johnson? So is uh, sci-fi is definitely next. That's next on your docket? That's it. Are yeah, we going to have to wait four years for the I next one? I hope not, man. I hope not. I'm almost <laughs> done with the script, and we're going to try and get it going as soon as we possibly can. You know, um, I guess I should mention, just because we're in a computer store, we got a couple... Um, Actually, we just launched today. We have a, I have a Tumblr blog for the Brothers Bloom that I've been keeping up on, and they just completely revamped it, and it's actually really cool. So if you look up, um, it's probably like brothersbloom.tumblr.com, or just Google Brothers Bloom and Tumblr. Um, I'm actually posting all the time on that thing, and, and they just re like did this whole layout with it that's pretty awesome. Hey, Ryan. Um, when you're writing your own s scripts... Um are you also looking up uh, later 
like uh, writing storyboards and drawing storyboards, since you're gonna eventually direct it or you're thinking in your mind, I'm eventually gonna direct it. Are you, you know, thinking of shots you're gonna compose later or are you just like leaving that until you cast and find locations? No, so sometime in some scenes that you're right, you have the you have the visuals, and that's like an in, an integral part of how the scene how the scene works. And so you're thinking of that while you're writing. Other stuff, you just write the scene, and then what I do after I finish the script, um, I have a period of a couple like three or four weeks or so, um, where I storyboard the whole thing out myself. And it's almost like a second writing phase, but it's, it's, it's visually writing the movie. Um, and that's really important, I think, because you can sit down and really intricately plan the whole thing out without the pressures of the set around you um, and just completely focused on that. So that's how I do it. How much room do you leave on the set for improvisation? Does that interest you uh, a lot as a filmmaker? Are those happy discoveries to make as a filmmaker, or do you stick a lot to your own? No, we mostly sets. stick to the stick to the script. If there's something that isn't working, we'll 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 change it around. Or if there's something that feels like it could be working better, you have to always be open to that. And I'm that's actually one of the big things I learned on this movie was trying to be much more open and be much more you know um, to happy accents. Sometimes I feel like. Uh, I don't know, with Brick, we had 19 days to shoot it, so we had to be so completely controlled. And with this, it, it was kind of a learning process of, of, of being able to take a little bit more of a breath and, uh, you know, leave yourself open to those things. And in particular, in Brick, I would think it's a little bit even more difficult to improvise, and again, that style's the kind yeah, of dialogue. Yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, impossible. And this, I mean, this too had a specific type of, it's much less stringent than Brick, but it was, um, there wasn't a lot of improv that happened in this. Also because the plotting in this is a little complicated, so the actors were pretty confused most of the time, which um, worked to my advantage. It's much easier to control confused actors, so... <laughs> There's a lesson. Just trust yes. me. Go with it. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Did you shoot uh, on digital either of these films? No, these are both on, on film. Um, we shot Brick straight 35, and we shot this Super 35 and did a digital intermediate for the color correction. Does that intrigue you uh, in any way as a filmmaker to play with any of those tools of the medium right now? Uh, no, right now, I really like film. I actually want to go back to, for the next one, I'd, I've been talking to my DP about shooting it anamorphic and not even doing a DI, actually, just doing a traditional photochemical um, color correction process. I I, I mean, I, I think that film, it's we have a limited number of years when film's still going to be around. And I actually think that digital... Is, is really coming into its own, and especially with, you know, um, yeah, if you look at, you know, I, I, I think Benjamin Button was maybe the first movie I saw where I was like, okay, I can't say that this would have looked better shot on film, you know. Um, so it's it's happening. Digital's happening, and it's inevitable. I guess that's part of the reason why, I, given the chance, I want to try and shoot film for as long as I can. You know, there's just something about film which is both beautiful and going away. <laughs> Now's the time. Any more questions? Yes. Here comes the mic. Hi. Um, the way you were describing the struggle you had to go through to make brick, maybe you're just understating it. Was it really hard? Because the way you're talking about it, it sounds like this wasn't that big of a deal for oh, you. Oh, no. It was, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't hard the way that, you know, uh, lifting heavy things is hard or something. It wasn't like torturous or something, but it was a long, long time of, I mean, basically I finished, I finished writing the script right when I got out of college. So I was what, like 22, 23. And then we shot it right before I turned 30. So it was literally most of my 20s were spent with this script 
that um, we just kept getting constant a constant round of no's from everybody that we showed it to. Um, and so, I mean, the tough thing is, the tough parts come like six years into that when you feel like, when you seem like you're on the verge of abouting to finally get it to, to come together and then it all falls apart. And then the next morning you wake up and you're back at the exact same place you were six years ago. And that happens several times during the process. And that's hard, you know, but that's just... Um, it's hard, but it's part of the process. I guess part of, you know, um, uh, I, I believe me, I was complaining a lot more about it at the time. Uh, I guess the fact that I've now gone to actually make the film, um, it, it, I don't feel like I'm in really a place to, to, to complain about those years very much, but it's, no, I, I, when you're trying to get a feature film made, it's, it's the hardest thing in the world when it's your first thing, you know, and uh, so. Uh, but that, the trick is, and I'm essentially, um, I think maybe I, I forged this kind of sense of optimism during those years out of a survivalist mentality, <laughs> just for just to survive. You kind of just think, you know, okay, if you have something good, and if you're going to create something that's good, and if you keep working on it, and keep, you know, if you actually have something that's going to be good, eventually, if you don't go away, you'll get it made. And once you get it made, it'll it'll rise to the top, you know, if you, if you keep getting better at what you do, then eventually your stuff will shine, will, will, will get out there, you know, in one form or another. Um, and, I, you know, I really believe that, so um, you just got to stick around, you know. Anyway, those six or eight years are called development. That's development, exactly. <laughs> development the process, help, right? Yeah. Um, are you a, I'm curious, I was reading the, the blog the other day, and I, or today actually, and I noticed that, so you have a lot of content on there, including the film's getting great reviews, but there was a, a, a not-so-favorable thing on there. So I'm wondering, do you yeah. take um, uh, you know, lessons learned from people that maybe don't have the most positive things to say about you sometimes? Well, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if it's so much lessons learned. I mean, it's always interesting to read bad reviews. That's something I've done on the Tumblr blog, which I, I don't know if it's a good idea or not. I have no <laughs> clue. I've posted all the good reviews, but I've also thrown up the bad reviews that we've got in there, too. And um, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's never fun reading, reading a bad review Sometimes it's fun if if it's <laughs> if it's a, a bad review that's so ridiculously out there <laughs> that you can kind of laugh about it a little bit. But it, it's it's never really fun reading bad reviews. I guess it's more. I don't know. I'm. I, I guess I can. I, I feel like I'm a little bit buffered against that because of my experience with Brick, where um, Brick, when it, especially when it first came out, it, it was a very polarizing film and you got people who are really on board with it and you also got a lot of people who really like vehemently hated it like really had almost an allergic reaction to it and we're finding that with this film too maybe it's because the style is so heightened maybe it's because it, it goes for like such a specific thing but it, it's really turning out that if if people don't connect with it they really don't can and have like a very kind of um, ew, type reaction to it, but the, on the flip side, the people who do connect with it tend to really be struck by it and and tend to really embrace it, um, and I think that's great. I mean, I maybe that's part of why I feel okay posting these things. It's it's kind of, you know, it it, it shows to me that there's people who are loving the film and hating the film, and and for me, like all you know, I've said before, I really, that all my favorite movies are somebody else's least favorite movie, you know? I think that's actually a good thing for a film to have lovers and haters, you know? You need positive reception in order to absorb that stuff. Otherwise, I mean, like, Uwe Boll doesn't have a blog of just all his bad reviews, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess not. That's true. Did we have another question over here? Yeah. Uh, you said when you made Brick that you got a round of no's, like, pretty consistently. Did you ever feel pressure to change the movie? 
Yeah, I, we got a lot. Oh, God, you, yeah, you can only imagine some of the stuff that we, you know. I mean, the thing that came up over and over was add voiceover to it or, you know, put in a character who's, like, new to the school who doesn't know how these crazy people talk so they can, like, teach him how to do it. And so, and you, you get dumb notes like that, but nothing that... And there, there came a point where I just kind of... Um, I don't know. I just, I, I just kind of realized that the changes that were being suggested would dilute what was essentially special about about the material. And once that kind of clicked in my head, it wasn't ever seriously a temptation. And also, the second thing is, you kind of take a step back and look and realize that these people who are telling you to change these things, you might end up changing it, and they, there's no guarantee they'd actually get the movie made. You know, they're kind of. Nobody really knows every anything, you know. Everyone's just kind of yeah, shucking and jiving, you know. So it's it's there's that element of it too. So it came up a lot, but it was never really a, a, a temptation, you know. We have time for one or two more. Yeah. In this film, uh, in this film, there's a lot of comedic uh, moment uh, in this film, even though the con film. Uh, I, I was just wondering, how did you get managed to actually shoot this film? A little bit in the thriller aspect and a comedic aspect. In the comedic aspects of it, well, it's you, you, uh, you, you have to get good. I mean, it's all about the cast. It's all about getting the actors who can do it. You mean? Do you mean like pulling off the the comedic moments of it as opposed to? Obviously, thriller aspect too as well. So I was just wondering how, oh, did, totally. you, how, yeah, how did you manage the two to mix those two? I, th I think the trick for me, and this is where um, the, the trick for me is, to, is if you kind of don't look at the comedy as a filmmaker, if you just keep your eyes on the scene and keep your eyes on the characters and make sure that in the story as a whole and make sure that you're being honest scene to scene in terms of moving these characters forward towards where they're going and keeping the story going, the comedy is something that happens in the background, and the comedy is, is something that happens as a result of that. Um, so I think the trick is to never, to never reach for a joke. You know, if there's a joke that comes out of the situation these characters happen to be in, that's 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 what you play off of. You know, um, but um, I think that's a secret for me is if if you. Is, is kind of just to not think about it and to, uh, you know, these characters are getting into funny situations through the natural progression of the story. That's where the humor comes from, you know. So it seems like, you know, two films in and after this next film, you're going to have made three very different kinds of films, different uh, genres and also genre-defying films. Do you think, okay, so we're, t we're sitting here 10 or 15 years from now in our 15th Apple Q&A, is the body of work going to look like that? Is it going to be touching upon every different conceivable genre? Is there a, a Western, an animated film, a period piece, a merchant ivory? I mean, what, what's the, the body of work of Ryan Johnson going to look like, hopefully? <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm just, I, I'm gonna, I'm just really going to try to make another movie right now. That's, that's the furthest I'm going to try and look forward to. No, you just, I mean, that's, yeah, you, you know, I'm just going to... One I'll film feel, at a time. Yeah, one film at a time, and I'll be, I mean, especially given what the world of independent film is like out there now. Once I get this thing written, I'll just feel really lucky if we can get a shot, you know, and that's, that's the extent of my, of my vision, I guess. Well, in the, in the uh, foremost on our minds, Brothers Bloom opens this Friday, May 15th. I know you're all going to check it out. Uh, let's give uh, Ryan Johnson a hand. Thanks, so, guys. Thanks for your time. Thanks for coming.